morning the sun was shining She was lying in bed Wondering if she'd change it all If her hair was still red Their folks, they set their lives together Shoes are gonna be rough They never did like mama's homemade dress Papa's bank book wasn't big enough And he was standing on the side of the road Rain falling on the shoes Heading out for the East Coast Lord knows he paid some dues Getting through Good afternoon, Ann Arbor. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm honored to have in in our studio Robert Hass. Welcome, welcome, Robert. Thank you, T. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> oh, it's, it's it's good to see you sitting sitting there with the headphones and the mic. And <laughs> um, may I call you May I call you Bob? Please the, do. Okay. Well, without further ado, I'll I'll read the your your biography. This is this is actually um, for the listeners a pre-taped show. Um, Bob and I are, are talking on uh, Saturday, December first, two thousand seven, and um, Bob is in town uh, and he's reading and and also going to be at Shaman Drum Bookshop um, from his new book, um, Time and Materials: Poems, nineteen ninety seven, two thousand five. Um, and so now I will read the the bio in the back of said book. Robert Haas was born in San Francisco and lives in Berkeley, California, where he teaches at the University of California. He served as Poet Laureate of the United States from 1995 to 1997. A MacArthur Fellow and a two-time winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award, he has published poems, literary essays, and translations. He is married to the poet Brenda Hillman. That is a very short and sweet biography there. We can say so much more now, can't we? <laughs> you, We've got an hour. <laughs> uh, yeah, readers should probably know that the the writer always has to write the biography for the publisher, or they'll send you one, and then you get to, to, to try to fix it. You know. Right. Well, because at some point, you, you probably can't list all your awards <laughs> you know, because I, you just I, yeah, racked tried, them up basically I, I tried robert has lives in berkeley california he's married to the poet brenda hillman and they said no no you have to do you have to do more than that so and so this is so you expanded it <laughs> right well because if you you're very interested in haiku right mm -hmm. and always like from from a, for a long time now, right? Yeah, I mean, one, it's actually of the, of the books that I've done. One of my favorites is the book I did of of translations of the classic haiku poets. And 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 Basho figures into that, yeah, pretty pretty largely. Yeah, I I've actually um found some of your translations online, and one of them I don't I this uh, even Kyoto hearing the cuckoo's cry, I long for Kyoto. Yeah. That's that what can it, go by fast. The readers, listeners, I should say, might want to hear that again. Yes. It's a wonderful detail about this poem, but I'll, I'll say it to you. For it's just the, the cuckoo here involved is the Himalayan cuckoo. It's now, I'm told, more or less disappeared from Kyoto, but all through the history of, of Japanese poetry, kind of like the swallows returning to Capistrano in California, the sign of spring was when you first heard the first song of a Himalayan cuckoo in Kyoto as they were migrating through, coming south to north, I guess. And so the, the, the poem goes, even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo's cry, I long for Kyoto, 
which I always loved because it's that it's about that strange sensation of nostalgia for the present. You know, when you're yes. seeing something spectacularly beautiful and you have this odd thought, I wish I were seeing this, you know, it gets that. The, uh, the thing I heard later reading around in the scholarship was that the sound of the, of the, of the Himalayan cuckoo song is kyo, 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 and kyo is the Japanese way of saying Kyoto. So, oh, so that so, so we didn't. That's such a yeah. that's a, the deeper meaning there yeah. as well. Then, so one of, another fun of doing the book was then, you know, reading through all the scholarship, and I was getting to tell all these wonderful stories that lay behind the poems. So that would were always would were there from the beginning for, for Japanese readers. Um, Yes, yeah. and and so and that we wouldn't be able to yeah. to know in the translations of yeah. work. That's so. And when did you, when did you find like the Eastern writers? When did you start working in translation in in sort of the trajectory of your own work? Well, I grew up in California, and I, from high school, really started reading the Beat Poets, and it was, and it was from and other West Coast poets like. Kenneth Rexroth, who did beautiful translations of Chinese and Japanese poetry. So it, I sort of, sort of thought it was part of the package. And I also, that was how I got interested in, in classical Chinese and Japanese poetry, partly from reading Gary Snyder, especially in Jack Kerouac. And, um, but I didn't really get haiku. I wasn't that interested. And in fact, I think the haiku that I had read were from kind of gift shop books. <laughs> They're, just the as long as you have the syllables right, then you have a haiku yeah, for those. Well, <laughs> and also they tend to be very sentimental. Like a translation would. I remember one of the first translations of one of the kind of breakthrough poems by Basho. Uh, by yeah, by Basho goes uh, crow just perching on a bare branch autumn evening. Is the is the is the poem. The first version I saw of that, a translation went, a crow is perched on a bare branch, loneliness. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, sort of rule number one of all writers. It's like the, get the two yeah. by four out, yeah, right? right? And start yeah. whacking all the great, someone. The great rule that all young writers learned was a remark I think Henry James made. And it, it just said he just said writers need to learn to show not tell. Right. Some you know someone said it's probably on the bumper stickers in Iowa because the Iowa Writers <laughs> Workshop is such a famous teaching school. So everybody learns not to do exactly what the translator <laughs> did, which is provide one big kind of um, billboard-sized interpretation of the poem in the poem. Another thing, you know, I mean. I I never learned very much Japanese, but I wanted to learn enough that I could understand the armature of the poems, just get a feel for what's going on in that word. And there is in Japanese a uh, uh, past tense for a just completed action. Oh, so, so that immediacy so the, would be trans. Like you'd know that. So the word in this poem is for perched. Is it's really just finished perching. So it's as if it's registering exactly the moment when the branch has stilled after the bird oh, settling yes. on it. Yeah. Blackbird, dusk, the whole world turning dark, it's cold, and the branch has just stopped moving. And that's the poem. Autumn branch, um, how does it go? Uh, a crow just perching on a bare branch, autumn evening. Once you know all that stuff... The poem is completely spectacular. Yes. But you kind of need to, uh, 
get inside the 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 intensity and accuracy of observation in in that Japanese aesthetic tradition. So anyway, and and the only way you'd notice that, of course, too, is if you were had that almost that loneliness that the awareness that loneliness would would give you yeah. as the observer. Of course, nobody right. ever has any problem learning that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a, America, like, we have a yeah, few obstacles yeah, to yeah, that. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I remember a friend telling me that she was for a while a student of Louise Glick, who I think is a really amazing poet, and she said to her, I'm worried that I have not suffered enough to be a writer. What do you think? And Louise said to her very kindly, you don't need to worry about that one. Life will take care of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You just fasten your seatbelt as, right? as that goes. Oh, no. Well, that's good. Yeah. Unless unless you have, yeah, it, unless the suffering is all around you. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like walking through it, right? Yeah. Well, and uh, yes, that makes people mute, which is... Reminds me of the, my other adventure in translation, which is working in Polish yes, poetry. Yes, Milosz. Yeah. But, but you worked directly with him, so that must have been very... Or, or yeah. wait, I should ask you. Yeah, no. Because he was some, alive. Yeah, some of the time I did. I mean, most of the time I did. I started... I, he was a... Na- he is... Was. Uh, yeah. He's gone, alas. He was my neighbor in the Berkeley Hills, and I was aware of his presence there, blocks away long before I met him. Uh, How so? What do you, what well, do you mean by I that? Had, he wrote a book, in the f- a prose book in the 50s called The Captive Mind about writers in the politics of the Cold War. It's, I've seen people make lists of the, if you want to understand the 20th century, here are the five books you need to read. I've often seen this book on that list. And when I was in college, you know, about the five paperback books that everybody was sort of supposed to read was Camus' The Stranger, Walter Kaufman's Existentialism from Dostoevsky to Sartre, Miloš's The Captive Mind, Dostoevsky's Crime, whatever, you know, Kafka's The Trial. It was, it was, uh, everybody read it. Oh, All, okay. Every, and so, and I, and I knew of that book, and I knew that he was teaching at Berkeley because one of my grammar school sports friends went on to study Slavic language and was there. But his poems weren't much available. And then a volume came available, and they were not, they were very dry poems from his darkest period of exile, really, and they were not very well translated. So. And so not really reflective of the, 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 the real spirit that Miloš was yeah, sort of yeah, well, I, I later did come to see that they do represent an aspect of that spirit that's very great but i but you couldn't quite tell from the translations anyway i don't know it's almost like like the perching on the autumn you you can't see that without like understand what he was working in that those those poems if you don't yeah get the greater get the context anyway at a certain point i did meet him and we and he he when he read this is in the 1970s i should say people who don't, listeners who don't know, this man, Czesław Miłosz, M-I-L-O-Z-O-S-Z, who would say to himself as, you know, one of those obscure American exile scholars buried in a department in a country where everyone found his name incomprehensible, was one of the great poets of the 20th century in any language. He was born in Lithuania in 1911. 
he Lithuania was to Poland than what Ireland was to England. So he grew up Polish in Lithuania. And he went to the, the University of Vilno, which is now in Lithuania, was then part of Poland. It was like would have been like going to Dublin to the university if all the great English poets had come out of Dublin. That's the that's the setup. And then he went through the rise of writing his early poems during the rise of Nazism. He was in the underground in Warsaw during the war. After the war, he was um, a diplomat in the United States. He, then he quit the Polish government because he couldn't stomach communist censorship and ideology. Then he lived in exile as a freelance writer in France, very much at war with the French literary establishment, which was all Stalinist in those years. And then in 1960, uh, not having not been able to make a living as a freelance writer in Paris, he arrived in California, of all places. Right. Vilno is like Maine, you know, sandy soil, pines, rocks, gorgeous rivers. And so he finds himself on the barren coast of northern California among all of these um, uh what seemed to him lotus-eating Californians staring out at the Pacific, writing poems about the sun going down over San Francisco Bay in Polish that could not be trans that couldn't be published in his own country, and couldn't be read in the country where he was writing. And so, from 1960 to 1980, he wrote his poetry from the California hills in exile, and in 1980 won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So in the late 1970s, I, I was aware of him from the time I was in college in the 60s. In the late 1970s, um, we met. I was then a young published poet. He invited me to read his poems aloud in English on an occasion when he was going to give a public reading and read them in Polish. And we met. I thought, oh, my God, he's coming. What should I do? <laughs> I went out. It was a hot day. And this, so I thought, oh, I'll go find... Uh, what's a really good beer? And I went. I thought <laughs> some. I called somebody who cared. And he said the best beer on earth is called Pilsner or Kell. I thought that's yeah. what I knew you were going to say. So I ran down and got. You know, it was way more. I had little kids, right? Way more than I would spend on beer. And I got right. it and put it in the refrigerator. And he, I said, "Would you like casually? Would you like a beer?" And he said, "Yes." And I got out a Pilsner or Kell and handed it to him. And he said, "This." is a very good beer, and I thought, <laughs> I score. Anyway, then we, we sat down, and we started, to, he said, so these are the poems, and I read the translations uh, aloud, and he said, so... But who, how, who had, tran had he done the translation He had done himself? the translation okay. with a graduate student uh, of his, and, and he said, uh, um, you don't say what you think of the poems. And I said, um, well... Uh, they're very interesting, something like that. <laughs> you he didn't. Said, <laughs> and he said, you don't like them. And I thought, this guy, you know, he's... And I said, well, I, I can tell, I can tell the, the quality of the mind of the person who's, who's written them, but it's hard, you know, I can't read Polish, so I don't, I don't know. You know, in English, frankly, they're all stiff. Mm. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, this phrasing, I, you know, the natural way to say this would, but I don't know if it's said naturally or, right. I don't know the level of diction in the, in the Polish. And he said, well, it's such and such. And I said, well, then you 
might want to say it this way and then and that that this that was in 19 probably 77 or 78 and we ended up collaborating on the translation of his poems for the next 30 years though i didn't know wow. it because there was this immense body of work going back to the poems written as early as 1931 when he was in college and it covered the whole span of what happened to so that it just happened naturally then yeah bob you you both were sitting there because you were going to read with him yeah. at, a, at a public reading and, and then i said to him you know i've read about poems of yours that aren't translated somebody had saying the the great poem of world war ii is very the great poems of the world war ii so that's what you started with are very like quiet, the great poems well or? yeah are very quiet poems about objects um and there, uh, an essay in some literary magazine about this group of poets, and including Miwosh. And I said, so I saw a reference to, is this poem been translated? He said, no, no, it can't be translated. It's rhymed. It's written in very mm -hmm. simple, almost children's language. It just, and I said, well, has anybody tried to translate it? I would just love to see what it looked like. You know, People say it's a very great poem. And he said, well, I, so he, then he got out a literal translation that somebody made. And so... So I was starting, that was how I got started. And then wh when he won the Nobel Prize, there was suddenly great desire for the translations. translations of his poems. And I had the impression at that point, because he had said someplace, poetry should be written rarely and only under duress. <laughs> <laughs> that I thought, well, he probably only... You can't you know, have that many. Yeah. <laughs> But Boy, then when the, then when the yeah yeah so he and you know I mean I think the English translation of his poems now is about eight hundred pages and it, and there's probably two hundred more in Polish that have never been translated so so this is a relationship that you stepped into as as a young poet kind of at the begin at the at the beginning also early of yeah own. I had published one book and then and my second one was almost ready in fact the. I had heard that his, the way I met him was that I had heard that there was a manuscript of his circulating and he couldn't get it published. And so I called my publisher and said, I, they say this guy's great. And so my publisher published oh, wow. the volume of his poems and that was how I met Chesov. And, so. But, but how does, so how did that, is it even possible to know how working so closely with another poet, an older poet, uh -huh. would influence your work did you see your work did it change oh or did yeah it... but in uh, unreadable ways you know i mean we sat down together for starting in those years maybe 1980 uh, monday mornings for two hours for 20 years and going through this incredible body of work and you know often sometimes the problem would be okay it's april it's 1943 it's a sunday early spring, the sun is out, you can hear the laughter and the music because people are on an amusement park ride and they can see down into the ghetto where the, where the SS is taking the uh, Jews of Warsaw away. So the problem with writing the poem is what the hell is the name of that kind of ride in English? It's circular, it's not a Ferris wheel, it's one with chairs on chains and it swirls oh, yes. around and yes. flings you out like that what's the name of that he says to me i have no idea i've written it you know do, it's so i don't know so yeah. then it there are books for foreigners <laughs> of uh, objects 
in English language. So there is a picture of a carnival in one of these books, and it says Cheroplane is the name of it. <laughs> and know. I said, Cheroplane is too weird a word to that use That would like here. jolt people sort of out of the moment. Yeah. <laughs> what? And he had had merry-go-round, and I said, it's, and I thought they're right. I said it, okay. the horses could not rise above a wall as high as a ghetto wall, oh, right. and he said, "Well, oh, well, it's not America." Anyway, we're we're dealing with all of this in, incredible experience, and my issue was, what do I call this thing? You know, yeah. Another case I thought of in the dark. Is this interesting enough to go on about? Oh yeah. In the dark period. Of, <laughs> Anything you say, actually. Dark period of his exile. He wrote a poem saying, well, now an amazing poem called The Separate Notebooks. It's just odd things. And, you know, it, you hear the term and you think everybody ought to have one. You know, get in your desk, put something that's called The Separate Notebooks, where you just put down every private and unacceptable thought that you think ought to be recorded before you die. And call that The Separate Notebooks and keep it in a drawer. That's the kind of premise of this book. And, and this poem. So it begins by saying, now you have nothing to lose. My cautious, my something, my hyper-selfish cat, he calls himself. You are an echo that runs. And in the first English version I saw from a friend of mine, not from Chesov, but from a friend who's a Polish-language jazz DJ who I worked with for a while, runs on tippy-toe <laughs> through a train of rooms. And I said, well, this is really an interesting line, but tippy-toe is definitely not going to do. What's the word in Polish? And she said, well, it's an onomatopoetic word, tupochum. And I said, what does tupochum mean? And she said, well, the easy way to explain this is typical name for a pet hedgehog in Lithuania is tupocha. <laughs> That's the easy way to explain yeah. the so I would say. So I would say, she said, she smoked Paul Malls. You know, she was an expert on West Coast jazz. She would, so we always had Jerry Mulligan or Dave Brubeck on <laughs> in the back, puffing her Paul Malls. Say, I would say, you know, Tupochum is uh, like the sound of a hedgehog running across a hardwood floor. So. Wow. <laughs> so, so what do you do with that then? Yeah, that's exactly. a great image. Yeah. And then it turned out that the word train through a train of room, that the Polish word was amfilad. And, and if you look it up, it means uh, a series of successions of rooms that open by French doors. Oh, that that's what I pictured. I didn't get the French door so, part, but I knew that that was the yeah, idea that you'd so, walk through the... So I looked up, so the English word is amfilad. For the French architectural term. Oh. And it's used in New Orleans as the word because there was and that's carried the over from the French and that was right. how it But I said, well, if you say it in English, train might not carry it. But if you say it in English, amphilat is going to sound like an untranslated word, you know? Right. So anyway, tra translation is... That's what translation is like. You're always trying to solve these yeah. problems. So it's not only just trying to get into the feeling of it, too, because when you started to give this example, it, Bob, yeah. I thought you were trying to say, how we're sitting there on a Monday morning in California yeah. on a regular meeting day yeah. that we talk about these yeah. poems, and then you're trying to think about what it would yeah. be like to be there in 1943 yeah. and to suddenly have that like horror from something that's supposed yeah. to be beautiful. You know, yeah. like I was trying to think, how do you even understand that yeah. to get the feeling to it, start writing about it? Exactly. And then we would be reminiscing about, you know, what 
fair amusement parks were like in his childhood and what were they like in my childhood. We're laughing, and then we turn back and realize what the subject of the poem is. And, you know, if poetry means anything, it means to get that line uh, alive in other people's heads. So it reson rings, you know, that's what we can do for e one of the things we can do for each other. So to find, I think I, f uh, I think I settled on skittering for the sound of tapochum, and then, oh, yeah. and then may I don't know I don't even remember now whether I stayed with train or did amphilad. But you were an echo that runs skittering through a train of rooms, or you were an echo that maybe amphilad is grander. You were you were a echo that runs skittering through an amphilad of rooms. Maybe that's gorgeous enough that it will stay in people's heads and be real poetry, you know. Um, and these are the considerations. And those are the those are the considerations. Yeah. So it was, and anyway, it's like being alive twice to do this, you know, to relive this whole body of poetry. It was, I was at an age when I was too old anymore to have a master or a teacher, and I got one. Uh, but but in a in a natural way so it didn't feel like imposed uh, yeah. right? you just could step yeah. into this relationship yeah. because it seems like it must have been very equitable as well like he he was also getting something from you to put it not yeah. not in a uh, yes. i mean in a in 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 a lovely yeah. like a spirit way uh, yeah aristotle has that distinction that he makes you know between friendships of utility and friendships of affection i think <laughs> and it began our relationship began as a friendship of utility on both sides and then of course we became very dear friends over oh he was you know my father's age though he was more like a our, our relationship was he was not paternal toward me at mm. all it was more like comrades in this yes. enterprise so. of, of poetry Poems. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, let's start talking about time and materials, because <laughs> because that's what you're 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 you've actually been sort of heading around the country, mm -hmm. right, to different yeah. locations mm -hmm. and talking. This is the the, the latest book, mm -hmm. and um, so time and materials. What should you, let's read? Would you read us a poem to start us off, and then after the poem, we'll take a short break, mm -hmm. Bob, and then come back and. Mm -hmm. talk. Well, here's a very short poem. Okay. It's the poem that opens the book. <laughs> oh. I should say that, I'm though I'm a Californian, I've lived in the Middle West a little bit and was sort of astonished by Midwestern winters. And this is a poem about that, I guess. It's called Iowa, January. In the long winter nights, a farmer's dreams are narrow. Over and over, he enters the furrow. That's it. Two lines. <laughs> I had the, at first I had the idea that I was going to organize this book by having the first poem be a two-line poem, the second line be second be a three-line, and the fourth be a four-line. And my wife, at a certain point, said, "That's really a very stupid idea." So <laughs> I, <laughs> it was it, it was clearly some. You work at poems over a long time, and you're trying to think now. How do I? Did we see them? Make an arc <laughs> of this that you know. So anyway, it's funny. <laughs> but she said, put the kibosh. Yeah, right. But I did nevertheless start it with this two-line poem. The, the, so figure, if people don't like the, you know, the two lines, then they can just let it go. Exactly. <laughs> the next one is um, a five-line poem. And it's an English version of a very gorgeous poem in uh, German that by the poet Georg Trockel that tries, I think, 
just to get a certain change of color in a fall sunset. October night, the sun going down, evening with its brown and blue. Music from another room, evening with its blue and brown. October night, the sun going down. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. We'll take, let's, uh, let's take a short break. We're today, um, Robert Hess in the studio with his new book of poems, Time and Materials, The Living Writer Show. We'll be right back. If you're just tuning in to the Living Writer Show, today 
It's so great. We have Robert Haas here, and um, you're you're coming in at a good time because um, Bob is going to read a poem, uh, another poem from Time and Materials, his latest book um, uh, on Eco Press, Echo Press. Um, let's see. So, yeah, Bob, which one? What wh what shall we read, or uh, what shall you read? <laughs> let's see. Uh, here's a problem called about writing, I guess. Uh, I think it's about other things, but it's also about writing, and it's called The Problem of Describing Trees. <laughs> problem of Describing Trees. The aspen glitters in the wind, and that delights us. The leaf flutters, turning, because that motion in the heat of August protects its cells from drying out, likewise the leaf of the cottonwood. The gene pool threw up a wobbly stem and the tree danced. No. The tree capitalized. No. There are limits to saying in language what the tree did. It is good sometimes for poetry to disenchant us. Dance with me, dancer. Oh, I will. Mountains, sky, the aspen doing something in the wind. Thank you. So that, uh, that's a poem about that, I guess. <laughs> problem, a poem of language, about language and nature, which seems, turns on a whole bunch of other subjects in American poetry, I guess. Um, this is a poem, I read an amazing book, very dark book, that I recommend to all listeners. It's extremely disturbing. Um, about what happened in Berlin in the first two months of the arrival of the Russian army in the city, during which time, after losing two million people, two million Russian soldiers killed on the march to Berlin, when they arrived full of fury, they, for a couple of weeks, systematically raped every woman, child, grandmother, girl, child, and grandmother in the in the city in a kind of rage. A uh, young woman writer, editor, kept a journal during this period describing what happened to her, to the people around her, the ardent Nazis in the apartment house, and the people who gone about their private business. And it's very clear-headed, very clear-eyed, unsentimental, frank description of human behavior in a time when most people are just uh, scratching for survival. And it was published after the war in German and disappeared. It, the whole experience was so humiliating for the German people. And I imagine the depths of their shame and guilt so great, it just disappeared. Three years ago, the German poet Hans Magnus Enzenberger thought this book was so important that it ought to be published. And he created a publishing company in order to get it into the world again. And it's been translated into English. The author who's still alive is still anonymous. So it's called Anonymous. The title in the, of the English translation is A Woman in Berlin. Subtitle is Eight Weeks in a Conquered City. Um, it's a book about war. It's a book that, with quietly without saying so, makes the argument that the stuff one hears about violence against women is not an aberration in war, that it's at some level built into its very nature. And 
if countries are going to send their kids off to war, they better understand that they're not just sending them off to kill or be killed, but they're sending them off in a situation that makes ordinary people sometimes do really terrible things. All the more reason for thinking twice about a war. This is called the winged and acid dark. A sentence with dappled shadow in it. Something not sayable, spurting from the morning silence, secret as a thrush. The other man, the officer, who brought onions and wine and sacks of flour, the major with the swollen knee, wanted intelligent conversation afterwards. Having no choice, she provided that too. Potsdamer Plots, May 1945. When the first one was through with her, he pried her mouth open. Basho told Rensetsu to avoid sensational materials in poetry. If the horror of the world were the truth of the world, he said, there would be no one to say it, and no one to say it to. I think he recommended describing the slightly frenzied swarming of insects near a waterfall. Pried her mouth open and spit in it. We pass these things on, probably because we are what we can imagine. Something not sayable in the morning silence, the mind hungering after likenesses, tender sky, etc., curves the swallows trace in air. Another kind of poem that comes out, I guess, of is you know our living once again for, the, for these past three years, four years, with uh, another war that we uh, have taken responsibility for. Um, Bob, it's um, yes, that's you, you can't help but after like when you're thinking about that poem, then to also think of our our present and what what. Um, how in war it does, like you said, it 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 twists both both sides of anyone who's mm -hmm. on a side mm -hmm. to to do these things. Um, you're um, see, I'm rather speechless after hearing your poem, mm -hmm. so it kind of takes me a while to get, get the old brain fired up again. But um, but I also it reminded me of your poem, "The World as Will and Representation." Mm -hmm. Um, what you were talking about, um. Uh, with you need to consider what we're also sending them over, not just to kill the other side, mm -hmm. but what things they'll take part in. And I think it was interesting how in in this in this poem it really sort of uh, struck me that um, you could take a, a, a situation that was very um, specific um, from a, a home, a morning at home with a mother, father, and um, a, a son, a small a small child, um, and then have um a, may i read the last or will you sure. read the last few sure. lines of this why don't you read them it's the, um let's see slumped in a bathrobe penitent and biddable my mother at the kitchen table gagged and drank drank and gagged we get our first moral idea about the world about justice and power gender and the order of things from somewhere So I guess, what's my question in all that, right? Well, I guess it's just that I, I feel like in this poem, you're also saying that, that this is something that you were taught without even wanting to 
to learn it. And then you maybe, then you have to, in your own life, do something with that. Yeah. I mean, it, it interests me a lot that you wanted to read those lines because they're the ones that I struggled with the longest. I didn't know, I didn't know how to end this poem. It started for me, uh, different poems start in different places, but I found myself in, in a situation in my life in which I was in a terrible double bind, or I felt I was, and that I hated <laughs> double binds. I just hated any situations in which I was, uh, uh, where, uh, where I was placed in, in situations of, con of conflicting loyalties, where none of the choices seemed good. And um, so I start, that was what started me writing about this incident in my childhood that I, or period or something in my childhood, in which was a clue to me to why I, I couldn't stand it and why not, and why being in it always got me to use Bob Dylan's phrase, tangled up in blue, the one that we began with. So, um, so, and, but then I didn't, you know, you don't quite know what to say. There's another thing which uh, I suppose belongs to the professional world of poets in a way, which is that everybody's a little tired of autobiographical poetry at this point. And, um, also, I had in mind something that devastating thing that Dostoevsky said about Turgenev, who's, I think, a great writer. But Dostoevsky said, well, Turgenev is a wonderful writer, but the problem with him is if he were to describe a hanging, what he'd do is look at the hangman for a minute and he'd end up by pointing at the tear in his own eye. Uh. So self-reflective. Yeah, huh? that, that, you know, look at me suffering this experience. So I was trying to figure out how to say in some way, here's the world, you know. Anyway, so maybe I should read the poem. It's called The World as Will and Representation. When I was a child, my father, every morning, no, some mornings, for a time, when I was 10 or so, my father gave my mother a drug called antabuse. It makes you sick if you drink alcohol. They were little yellow pills. He ground them in a glass, dissolved them in water, handed her the glass, and watched her closely while she drank. It was the late 1940s, a time, a social world, in which the men got up and went to work, leaving the women with the children. His wink at me was a 1940s wink. He watched her closely so she couldn't pull a fast one or put anything over on a pair as shrewd as the two of us. I hear those phrases in old movies and my mind begins to drift. The reason he ground the medications fine was that the pills could be hidden under the tongue and spit out later. The reason that this ritual occurred so early in the morning, I was told and knew it to be true was that she could, if she wanted, induce herself to vomit. So she had to be watched until her system had absorbed the drug. Hard to render in these lines the rhythm of the act. He ground two of them to powder in a glass, filled it with water, handed it to her, and watched her drink. In my memory, he's wearing a suit, gray, herringbone, a white shirt she had ironed. Some mornings, as in the comics we read, when Dagwood went off early to placate Mr. Dithers, leaving Blondie with crusts of toast and yellow rivulets of egg yolk to be cleared before she went shopping, 
on what the comet called a shopping spree with Trixie, the next-door neighbor, my father would catch an early bus and leave the task of vigilance to me. Keep an eye on Mama, partner. You know the passage in the Aeneid? The man who leaves the burning city with his father on his shoulders, holding his young son's hand, means to do well among the flaming auras and the falling columns, while the blind prophet, arms upraised, howls from the inner chamber, Great Troy is fallen, Great Troy is no more. Slumped in a bathrobe, penitent and biddable, my mother at the kitchen table gagged and drank, drank and gagged. We get our first moral idea about the world about justice and power, gender, and the order of things from somewhere. Thank, thank you for reading th that one. Thank you. We'll, um, we'll, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. And uh, you're listening to WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor, and The Living Writers Show. afternoon, Ann Arbor. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. Today in the studio, Robert Hass. Uh, he's in town um, and to, to read from his new book, Time and Materials, and he was brought here. Um, it, it's a special occasion uh, uh, to celebrate the day with, without art. Um, and the with, the day without art, the with is in uh, parentheses, um, and it's for World AIDS Day. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, Bob. So you're you're have a few events. Um, yeah, celebrate is a complicated word. I know. Because, when I said that, I was like, ah. but in some way, <laughs> it is to celebrate the power of art to imagine. I guess commemorate or a, so a world is without a, it. Even yes. commemorate isn't quite right. That that there There's is no word. No that's good quite word. Right no. Is, is what's uh, is the point of this? I think, and you know how we how we keep in our mind there at this point at this moment in december of 2007 there's so much to to keep in mind uh and so much that um the culture wants to drown out and one of the things that's great about the way that the university of michigan art museum has opened itself to this i think this is the third year of the of the day without art is it it's to remind us of what uh, a life with art can give us, which is an awareness of loss and of of beauty and of the tenuousness of every day. I lived in San Francisco during those years of the early um, outbreak of AIDS and the way that it spread terribly through that community, and I lost several friends. And among the poets who were, who were living in that um in in San Francisco in the Castro district which was became a kind of mecca and gay village uh, in the 70s that was then terribly devastated by AIDS um, uh, I think of the work of the of the poets I've named two books the one by the poet who read here last year Mark Doty's My Alexandria is a gorgeous book about about this and the other one is a remarkable nervy little book by a writer named D.A. Powell, Doug Powell, called T, which is T-E-A, which is old gay slang for gossip. And it's a book about, uh, it's a book that reads like a handheld camera as if you were looking at what it was like to be young and alive in that time when the discos were full of songs that mixed up the idea of heaven and dying, like Donner's, Donna Summer's songs that people were listening to just before the epidemic struck. The epidemic that now, of course, is most devastating in Africa. So it's quite wonderful that the museum, which is a place I just love, I think you're very lucky to have it in this city, um, and I'm very anxious to see the new museum as it comes into being. Anyway, that the museum has set aside to do this is great, and that I'm going to get to be part of it uh, is also an honor. Well, thank you for being a part of it, mm-hmm. Bob, and coming here. I think I went to hear Mark Doty read um, when he was here, mm-hmm. and um, it was also uh, quite uh, striking because the the museum had covered up the works of art yeah. that were people who had AIDS or had, had died from AIDS. Yes. And so it was so... Um, powerful to actually just see the things that were covered that wouldn't be there. I, I saw the same thing in the okay. Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, and it was because I was raised a Catholic and was used to seeing the uh, the statues of the saints covered uh, in in Lent. It it made me, reminded me of that, of that gesture, the kind of gorgeous and terrible gesture of memorializing 
Yes. I didn't know. I'm, I was raised Catholic, too. I didn't yeah. know that they covered statues. That's really... You didn't... You don't, yeah. re, you don't remember Holy Week as it, when they... Well, I, I don't remember them covering anything, but maybe, you know, oh. this was Florida, so maybe... Ah, uh, it might have been. <laughs> Everyone, yeah. whenever I say that, they're like, oh, and, well, and well, those, it was Florida. <laughs> I, and it might not be. I, speaking, we were talking about Chesil Melos earlier. I mean, it's a funny thing about being... One, one time, I was sitting around drinking with... Seamus Heaney and Cheslav, and we were, he was, he had his Catholic childhood in Lithuania and Seamus in Belfast and me in San Francisco, and we started talking about poetry, and Seamus said, Hail, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. <laughs> we were talking about first poems we heard, and, and uh, I said, you know, to thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. And Cheslov could come in and do the Polish of the next line and so on. That There is one of the great things about everything else about growing up Catholic, for good or ill, is that, <laughs> is that shared experience. But So I thought that ritual was universal. Maybe some listeners will know and can... Yes, and maybe someone uh, will yeah. let me know that and defend yeah, Florida. Yeah. <laughs> but it looked like the, they, were, they were dark purple sacks that kind of looked like jeweler sacks that, oh, they, right. okay. that they put over the... Maybe it, was, maybe it was just between Good Friday and Easter or something, but I remember it very could, vividly. That yeah. could make sense, too, yeah. because that would be a time when nothing had really existed, yeah. like that that moment in time yeah. with Good Friday yeah. and Easter, right? Yeah. So that would... How interesting. That's the... I think that's one of the... For, yeah. for when you said for good or ill with the Catholicism, yeah. it gives you that early... Um, I understand understanding non-understanding of mystery. Yeah, and thinking about that, I mean, I do th think about the uh, uh, what the thing that you just said. You know that the, of course, scholarship and it was part of the deal of anthropological scholarship in the 1920s to notice that that dark that that idea that the that there is a moment a transformative moment when the God goes down into the dark, just as the seed goes down into the dark for planting, then it, people are able to describe and discover thousands of such rituals of the of the dying of the god and and rebirth at the core of any idea of of mystery and of spiritual life and it made me think well one of the th odd things about being taught by irish and italian nuns and on the california coast in the middle of the 20th century was that i got all of mediterranean earth religion in the form of rituals and, and forms. Not a bad inheritance. No, no, not, mm. not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so... In, where in Florida? Oh, Hope Sound. Where's Hope Sound? It's on the it's on the east coast. It's the uh -huh. north part of South Florida. Uh -huh. So it used to have escaped the cement uh -huh. sort of jungle uh -huh. of Florida, uh -huh. but now it's it's paved over and has golf courses. Uh -huh. and, um, but it was, it's so interesting because you're, that's, um, whether you like it or not, that's such a, it's a ritual. It's a part of your, your week. And yeah. that's also one of the first ideas. Someone, um, 
stole the gold chalice at one point and that was and then right after that the the church was locked and it never had been and uh, that's like your town like the town was not a small town uh, anymore and yeah. um but but um but enough about hope sound right <laughs> bob we only have a precious few moments left with you um i just got a sign held up there so um i i thought it was interesting that you were asked um like who are the most important five poets that was that a question that you hated to be asked or or that it was okay that you felt like it was an important moment to be able to talk about the like, most the, important five like, poets from the past 50 years and do you even remember that because no. this was part of the googling that research oh, that i did right. <laughs> yes that's right well i've there have been a couple of those things in the last few years one is that the national book critic circle has created a um, database of two or three hundred r- poets writers and critics each to name the, their favorite work of poetry, fiction, nonfiction from the last year. And, from, and they're going to now every year publish a thing of here are the favorite books of American writers from this past year from as a gift, hint to readers. So there was that. And then there was, I got a, a I, I forget whether it was from the Newsweek or I think it was Newsweek asked what are, it was like the, what five books uh, you know, do you want a desert island or were, <laughs> were, no? It was what five books were essential to the formation of your own imagination? Ooh. And, and, and that, so that was interesting to try to think about too. And and how? But how to even keep it to five, right? Yeah. Or to how how to even really know how? To, I mean, you'd only be sort of guessing at what it was that impacted you usually, right? Right. Or, or yeah. was it easy for you? What? Well, I did it. It was easy because I did it fast. You know? <laughs> On deadline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that does yeah. change things. Yeah. Yeah. I thought. You what know, were they? Well, Just, thought, can you remember? Thought, or is what, that? Well, yeah, it wasn't that. I mean, what poets are absolutely essential to me? And I thought Shakespeare. Mm. And Walt Whitman, you know, wasn't that hard. So that would be, okay. I, and then I think, well, what about, th- there are other poets who are really important to me. The poet who I'm a, a most obsessed with right now is Emily Dickinson, but that was a later um, love, in, love yeah. for me. And, you know, early on, Wallace Stevens, Ezra Pound, da, 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 da. but anyway, I thought sh- those two, that's easy. Yes. Yeah. Well, do you want, shall I read you your list from the one? Sure, yeah. <laughs> Just to refresh yeah. the memory, right? Neruda, Vallejo, Herbert, and Szymborska, and Milos. Ah. So it was interesting because all, like, were on a world, an international poet. Yeah. Oh, this must have been about 20th century poets. The, I mean, of course, the other thing with this is that you try to, with, you know, with, you try to say to people, if you haven't read these, if right. read these, you know. So, yeah, like how yeah. do you use your yeah. your your list your yeah. <laughs> to get like the that would be a you know good list for certain things of you know what how to get at certain level areas of twentieth century experience. If I saw that as proposed by somebody else, I would say, what about Eliot? You know, the wasteland was whatever you think about his later politics or so on. The the poem for people in most languages in the world, I think, that defined modernism and made possible so much in 20th century art. And it's also such a personal poem, really. So. Yes. 
But thank you so much for, for being here today. Thank you. It's an enormous thank you, pleasure. Thank you. And, and um, if you're ever coming through again, it would always be uh, just wonderful uh-huh. to, to talk with you. Well, you know, uh, I have grandchildren in Ann Arbor, so I come through as often as I can. Watch oh, out. For oh, that would be great. <laughs> I used to, I lived on the same street as Kristen. <laughs> so I've waved to your family. Uh-huh. <laughs> now that sounds not, okay, what a note to end on, right? <laughs> Good note to end on. <laughs> you're listening to The Living Writers Show. Um, today, Robert Hess, um, his book, Time and Materials. Um, Thank you to Jesse Johnston for engineering and thanks for listening in Arbor and for streaming Seattle, Chicago and Hope Sound. Bye. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, December the 1st, 2010. In San Francisco, I'm Danny Wood. Coming up on the newscast... U.S. Interior Secretary Ken Salazar says new offshore drilling along much of the U.S. coast will be off-limits. Congress must act before a leasing activity can commence in the eastern Gulf. The Debt Commission reveals its proposal to cut trillions of dollars from the U.S. deficit. And the FCC unveils their framework for net neutrality. Those stories and more, but first, the headlines. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. In Egypt, fallout from the weekend's election continues. The country's largest opposition group, the Muslim Brotherhood, announced today they will boycott runoff elections 